copy of God's Word to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 30 through 36 this morning. Continuing on in this conversation, this dialogue, sermon, slash dialogue that Jesus has been having there in the, uh, the temple courts, the court of the women as it's called, or the court of the treasury as it's called. As he speaks and he interacts with the Pharisees or those who end up being there speaking, sometimes it's called the Jews. We're going to be looking this morning at a familiar topic in John's gospel, the topic of true discipleship. And we already saw all of chapter 6 was dedicated to this topic. What is true discipleship? And the gospel, all four gospels, end with it in some way, even the book of Acts beginning with it, this, con this concept of true discipleship with the underlying narrative of Judas and Peter. Who really are the disciples of Christ? It's a major theme in the ministry of Christ. And throughout the entirety of scripture, who are the true followers and who are the imposters? Now this go-round on the topic, though, there's going to be a bit of fresh seasoning on it. And that seasoning is the concept of freedom. The concept of freedom as it relates to true discipleship. Now freedom is one of the most overarching, greater overarching narratives or concepts in our country's heritage, just in our DNA. Let freedom ring. It's a free country, isn't it? Free market economy is going to save us. And when we want something to be embraced or, or liked, we just slap the title freedom on it and everybody gets on board, right? Remember back a few years ago when we were mad at France? We changed the name of fries to Freedom Fries. Remember that? We did that because that, we really love fries and we're not going to let them take freedom from it. Freedom Fries. And I think the TSA could avoid a whole lot of problems if they would just call them Freedom Searches. You go to the airport, everybody's like, great, I love a Freedom Search. Go ahead and take that out. That, that concept is well received in our context. But just like any biblical concept, we have to define freedom. Just like we have to define what biblical love is, or kindness, or unity, or gentleness. If we don't define them biblically, then they can metastasize into something truly detrimental or antithetical to the Bible. And freedom's no different than that. I mean, just think about freedom. Am I free to yell fire in a crowded room? Am I free to do that? Am I, am I, is my freedom. Does that mean that I can follow my heart and my dreams that I should do that? Or does freedom mean that God just steps back and cheers me on as I do what I want to do? we got to understand what freedom really is biblically. In these seven verses, Jesus just kind of packs an a, uh, encyclopedia of theology for us and freedom bookends it. Freedom at the beginning and at the end of these seven verses. So we're going to get into what he means by that. But we're also going to explore these other major biblical themes and concepts that are stuffed into these seven verses. These big ideas that help us understand God's unsearchable grace in saving sinners like us. So the big idea this morning is that Jesus' true disciples always bear three traits. They always abide in God's word. They are always free from sin. And they are co-heirs with Christ. We're going to look at that. The first one comes in verses 30. Through 32, that true disciples abide in Christ's word. Look at verse 30 with me. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, what things? Remember, we talked about last week, verses 21 through 29, that, that Jesus made these three declarations that are not naturally or readily received by us. Often, the divinity of Christ, the depravity of man, and justification by faith alone. So after when Jesus said those things, after he proclaimed those things in verse 30, many believed in him. It appears that many have believed. So what we can see there is that declaring difficult truths doesn't always mean 
that people are led to vehemently rejecting it. But it also, we're going to see, doesn't always mean that people are led to truly accept it. Because we've seen both in John's gospel, haven't we? We've seen people truly converted in large groups, right? Chapter 4, woman at the well, and she's in Sychar in the town of Samaria. She hears the gospel from Jesus, and what does she do? She runs and she goes and tells everybody in town. They come and listen. They all repent. They all believe, and they're all saved. Massive revival in that one town. But we've also seen people profess to believe in Jesus and not be genuine, like John 2. Remember John 2, 23 through 25, after he cleanses the temple? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then in John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So what are we to make of this? How are we to understand people's professions of faith? That's what happens in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. How do we understand those? Because we've already seen false and true professions of faith. A couple of years ago, when we were in Houston, pastor, I was pastoring down in Houston, I had two different couples come to me at about the exact same time, young couples, and they wanted me to do their wedding. And as I always do, if you want me to do your wedding, I'm either going to do your premarital counseling or some other trusted pastor church group is going to do premarital counseling. That's critical. So I'd always sit down with them, and both of these couples, it's a believing young lady engaged to an unbelieving man. Both of them had never really thought about it, never really dealt with it. And the, 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 the two tracks went very differently. One comes back into my office. One young man comes back into my office after we talked about it and together with the couple, weeping, crying, saying, I, I want to change. I want this. And I'm like, great, let's, let, let's meet together every week and we'll read a chapter of the Gospel of Mark and just walk through and talk through these things. And then the other guy was just kind of, calculating, very quiet, just, you know, brilliant guy, top of his class at A&M Engineering, working downtown in Houston for a petroleum engineering firm, seemed totally unaffected by the gospel. And then as time went on, I never saw the guy who was weeping and crying in my office again. Never again. They got married, and they got divorced eight months later. The other guy calls me out of the blue and says, I've just been hit like a ton of bricks. He was driving on his way to work, got to the parking lot, and just breaks down and hears and, and believes the gospel, repents and believes. And he's walking with the Lord to this day and got married to his, his wife and leading a godly life. So what are we to make of this? What was the deciding factor in understanding their profession of faith? Time and truth. Time and truth always walk hand in hand. Always. Jesus is going to speak to this very issue in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So who is talking and to talking to whom? Jesus to those who had believed in him. That's who he's talking to. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. How did he respond to their profession of faith? If. 
He didn't fill out a commitment card and then hand them a new, you know, Bible wrapped in the cellophane off and write their spiritual birth date in it. He didn't say, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. He said, if you are truly my disciples, time will tell. That's what he said to them. Time will show the truth of a changed heart. J.C. Ryle helps us think through this really well. Bishop of Liverpool in the 1880s. He said, by all means, this is how do we respond to people's professions of faith? He says, by all means, let us be hopeful when we see anything like conversion. But let us not make too sure that it is real conversion until time has set its seal upon it. Time and wear test metals and prove whether they are solid or plated. Time and wear in like manner are the surest tests of a man's religion. Where there is spiritual life, there will be continuance and steady perseverance. It is the man who goes on as well as begins that is the disciple indeed. Time and wear test the metal, I believe he said. And according to Jesus, what does it say in verse 31? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. A changed heart, a truly disciple, or a person who's become a disciple, abides in the word of God. Abide is the Greek word meno. It means to stay, to remain, to continue. A truly converted person remains truly converted and continues to follow Christ over time. Now, is that following imperfect? Yes. Is that abiding in God's word inconsistent at times? Yes. Absolutely. But is it possible to truly be Christ's disciple and not continue in God's word? No. That's just the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or really the preservation of the saints, that we're being preserved by God. See, John uses the same word elsewhere to help us understand this further. When he's writing 1 John, these fledgling churches, these early churches, they're babies. They're not, they haven't been around for, for just about a couple of years, maybe. He says in 1 John 2, 19, to these churches, and Larry's supposed to go around to all these churches. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. He's telling that they, they left because they were never really a part of us. If they were really a part of us, they would have stayed with us. But they went out so that everybody would know. It would become plain that all are not of us. We know who Christ's disciples are, the born again, because they continue. They remain. They abide with him, with his people, and with his word. Now, you got to ask. Why would Jesus say this to these people who just said they believed in him? Why say this now? Well, it's got to be because he's not done evangelizing them. That's the only reason, right? It can't be because he hates them. He doesn't hate them. He's just not done evangelizing them. He's not done witnessing to them. When anyone we know professes faith, we continue to evangelize them by continuing to explain what it is they've said that they believe. We continue to do that. We see this most often with parents and with children. Just because our children profess faith in Christ doesn't mean that we stop then evangelizing in the sense of explaining the gospel to them and then asking them, is that what you believe? What is the gospel? How are people saved? What does it mean to be justified? We keep coming back to those things. We just keep explaining, even after a profession of faith. <laughs> One of the uh, truly unique elements of, of the uh, believer's baptism camp, we'll call credo baptism camp, Young people after they profess faith in Christ, 
is talking to parents, brushing their kids into the water, just really want to get that burden of their eternity off of them. And so if I can just get you to participate and just get you into the water, then you'll be saved and not worry about it ever again. Which, that burden's not on us anyway. Let's just take that burden off of us. That burden's on God, whether or not my children are saved. But there's been plenty of times where I've been sitting with the, uh, the, the parents of a very young child, and they want to get baptized. And I ask the, the child, so why are we here? Why are we talking today? I don't know. What, what, do, you, what do you think we're going to talk about today? I don't know. And, and then mom goes, oh, yes, you do. She does. She, she really does. She does. Well, what happened? I don't know. And then I go, well, do you, do you, I want to talk about Jesus or anything? Yeah. Like, do you remember what happened? Oh, she remembers what happened. She remembers. It was the other night. We were there. We were talking. And then I said this. And you want to do that? Yeah, maybe. And then we have to have this awkward conversation with mom and dad. This kid doesn't know the gospel. But that's okay. We're going to keep evangelizing them. And so are you. We don't need to rush them into the water. Every baptism that I've ever done for anybody over the age of 16 is a second baptism. Second baptism. Why? Because mom was getting a three-for-one deal back when they were eight, and their two older siblings were getting baptized. said, you just get in there, too. You just go in there and get in there, too. Three-for-one, count them all, we're done. But then they realized, you know what? I wasn't actually a believer then at all. And so it wasn't, what was I doing? Kind of makes a pretty good case for infant baptism. Let's just get them all when they don't know anything. And we'll work from there. That's just throw over the blank slate on everybody. But, but we're doing that. So it's not just parents and kids. It's pastors and churches. It's friends and friends. It's community groups. And, and community group leaders, we keep evangelizing. We're not saying, okay, they're done. That's over. We're done explaining the gospel to you. We're done talking about what it looks like to really be a disciple of Christ. No, no, we're always doing that. We need to be continually taught the gospel because eternity is riding on it. I mean, we check our tax returns every year. When is it coming? When is it coming? When is it coming? More often than we check the gospel in our own heart. Or, or... The gospel in our friends' hearts, our children's hearts, our spouses' hearts, our, our, our church members' hearts. So Jesus' clarification on true disciples abiding in his word comes to full fruition in verse 32 when it says it leads to truth and freedom. Look at verse 32. <laughs> you will know the truth. Those who are truly my disciples will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, since true disciples of Christ abide in his word, then they know the truth, and then that truth sets them free that's the, the logic as it unfolds so let's work backwards in that statement let's logically reverse it if you're not Christ's disciple and you're not abiding in his word therefore you don't know the truth therefore you're not free as we work backwards through it so Jesus is making a powerful statement right here powerful statement in verses 31 32 in everything pertaining to life and godliness, the Bible has a monopoly on the truth. Monopoly. There is no other truth elsewhere as it pertains to life and godliness. That's the statement that Jesus is making. If you aren't Christ's disciple, then you don't know his word. Therefore, you don't know the truth. Therefore, you're not free. That's what Jesus is saying. See, this fact's from the mouth of our Savior. It's got to inform our churches. It's got to inform our marriages. It's got to inform our families, our, our individual lives. That, that we don't take advice from non-disciples of Christ on how to live our lives, order our families, or order our churches. Why? Because they don't know the truth, and they haven't been set free. Because they're not abiding in God's word. They don't know, we don't need secular philosophy or psychology 
who don't need the better business practices or life coaches or critical theorists or marketing strategists. None of that has anything to offer us as the people of the book who are abiding in his word and therefore know the truth and are set free. We don't, we don't need any of those things. <clears throat> Only the disciples of Christ know the truth and are set free by it. And Jesus is saying that a truly converted person will continue in his word and thus know the truth. And that truth sets a person free. Free from what? Well, we're going to see here in a little bit free from sin. But before we get into even free from sin, let's just discuss Christian freedom uh, as a standalone issue. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's a big deal. Paul's saying, this is why Christ has set us free, so that we would be free. One, we learn that Christ has set us free, and two, it's for a purpose of being free. Well, that's, we can't, we've got to let that know. It's a known truth throughout the scriptures that Christ came to set sinners free. Isaiah 61 1, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the this is the uh, the, pro the prophet speaking on behalf of Jesus before he's come. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon or is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, meaning heal them, put them back together, to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We know Christ came to set sinners. But freedom means freedom to do what we ought, not do what we want. That's what biblical freedom is. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, meaning for sin, but through love serve one another. What's the biggest example you can think of in all of scripture, in all of biblical history, of something or someone or some group being set free? Biggest example you can think of. It's got to be Exodus, right? We just, we're reading right now in, in, uh, in Genesis. Joseph's going to bring eventually all of his family there. They're going to grow huge in Egypt. And now we have the book of Exodus, right? Now we have let my people go. But in that moment, what were the Israelites set free to do? We often don't look at that. And the Prince of Egypt movie, I'm sorry to tell you, doesn't talk about that. Great animation, pretty good songs. Not a lot of theology. <laughs> Exodus 1 and 9 1, or Exodus 8 1 and 9 1 and 9 13 say, Let my people go that they may serve me. And it gets even more clear. If they weren't free to worship God, that's what they were, they weren't free to do that in Egypt. They weren't free to worship God. Let them go, not so they didn't just live their best life now, but so they can worship me. They're not free to worship me as, as slaves in Egypt. So let them go that they might be free to worship me. Now, what would happen to them if they weren't free to worship? Exodus 5 tells us that. This is one of the early conversations that Moses has with Pharaoh in verses 1 through 3. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh. Here they are in front of him. This is before he, Pharaoh takes away the straw from them making their bricks. This is early on. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Why? that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Worship. Let them go so they may worship. But Pharaoh said, in all of his grand humility, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, they, Moses and Aaron, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. 
Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Let us go worship. Please let us go worship. Why? Lest he, God, fall upon us, Israel, with pestilence or with the sword. What would be their fate if they were not set free to worship God? They were going to be judged and annihilated along with the Egyptians. That's the reality. Christian freedom is now being free to please God. They were unable, as slaves, to please God. Unable to worship God to an extent that God would have been forced to judge them in the same way he was going to judge the Egyptians. We are unable to please God before Christ. We're shackled in our slavery of rebellion against him. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 20 says so in verse or in chapter 3. It says Christian liberty, Christian freedom, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Freedom to do what we ought is not bondage. It's freedom. That's what it is, to do what we should do. It's freedom. Abiding in Christ's word as true disciples gives us knowledge that really, actually, genuinely sets us free. Now, disciples are not only abiding in his word, they're also free from sin. Verses 33 and 34. They answered him, we, so they, meaning the crowd, the Jews who said they had believed, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus has just provoked the crowds yet again. He just, if he had wanted their acceptance or them to just get along, go along and get along, he could have just, when they said, We all believe, he could have been, Great, thanks. But he didn't. He chose to provoke them. He chose to yet again to enter into conflict with them. His love for the world is too great to let them continue on in false belief, in a profession of faith that's not real. He loves them too much to allow them to just have warm, temporal feelings for him, but no saving faith. He loves them clearly and not himself because he's bringing upon himself their anger by telling them what it really means to be saved. He loves them and not himself. He could just have said, okay, great, I'm glad you guys like the message. Let them continue as deluded and self-deceived and slide into hell, thinking that they were saved. But he loves them too much. Now, their big issue with Jesus' saying shows their heart, does it not? What do they react against? The concept of freedom not true disciples, not what is your word, not the truth, that there is a concept of the truth and we must know it and walk in it. None of that stuff. Wait a minute. If you're saying that we're going to be set free by you, that you're saying that we're, we've been slaves before. We've never been slaves before. Just ask them to read their Old Testament. Just read this part. When were you not slaves? You're kind of slaves right now to Rome. Somebody is always over you, whether it's the Midianites, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Egyptians, or the Babylonians. Somebody owns you all the time. And right now it's Rome. So clearly they're not talking about that. They're talking about some kind of, of, uh, of spiritual, religious freedom. We've never been um, 
subservient to some false religion or some false worldview, but they're insulted by freedom. Because what is freedom saying? You were slaves, and I'm going to fix it. You weren't free, but if you're with me, then you become free. So he's saying to them, right now, right now, you are living not in freedom. So Jesus promising them freedom is an insult. Why? Because what is a slave? A slave is someone who is either too weak to fend off their master or too foolish to manage their life in such a way that they wouldn't have to volunteer into slavery in order to pay off their debts. So a slave is either a fool or a weakling. And that's what he's, that's what he's telling them. And they, that's, the, that's the insult that they grab onto. But he didn't say that to them. He just said, if you follow me, you'll have freedom. Have you ever gotten one of those backhanded insults? And you're looking so skinny right now. You're looking good right now, and you haven't been dieting. So you're like, wait a minute. Am I fat? It is wintertime. I'm wearing these coats. Wait, was I fat? Am I still fat? You're telling me that I look skinny now. Wait, wait. What's going back on? I remember when I went back for the first time ever to preach at my home church, and all my, my high school friends' parents are all still there. And they're like, wow, man, you're looking really filled out, and your hairstyle is really sleek now. I'm like, oh, so I'm fat and bald now? That's what we're going for? Well, you said that in that way, but that's what I'm hearing. You didn't say that. That's what, that's, what, that's what they're hearing. That's what they're latching on. That's how they took it. They connected to this lineage of Abraham, this biological heritage from Abraham, saying, we are from Abraham. We're God's chosen people, Right? Well, Jesus is going to refute that claim in verses 39 and 40 when we get there next week. But right now, they're asserting here that because of who their ancestors are, even though they were slaves in Egypt and they had troubles with Babylon and Midian and Assyria and Ammon and Philistines and all these groups that have always oppressed them, their hearts have never been enslaved. How dare you say that? We've never been subservient to somebody else's truth or worldview claim, even though they had also done that as well throughout their history. But that's their big problem. What this displays just isn't an unrepentant heart, right? No brokenness over their sin. They don't think sin has any hold on them whatsoever. They chose Christ. In the sense that we looked around at all the other options, it seems like you're the best rabbi with the best shtick. You're selling the best goods. It's just like buying internet. I'm going to go with AT&T. I'm going to go with Coaster. I'm going to go with who's, who's got the best deal. I will rationally decide that on my own after weighing the options and then put my hand in the contract with that one. That's what they had done. That's what they believed that they had done. There was nothing deficient in them. They had no need of Christ. They just thought he was the best show in town. And Jesus isn't going to stand for that. Now he's going to be brutally clear, not about him, but about all of humanity. All of humanity. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He, what, he, what did Jesus just do in a very good way? He destroyed any distinction, any ranking, any differentiation between Jew and Greek, freed person or true, actual, bonded slave, female or male, rich or poor, high class, low class. He destroyed all of those distinctions. Because really, what is the one uniting factor that unites all humanity throughout all of the world and all of church history or global history? It's sin, right? not our need to be loved, it's not our need for survival, not our need for super fast internet, but that may be the case these days, is sin. That's what makes us all the same. That's what unites all of us. That's what we all share. 
It equalizes all of humanity. No matter what your skin color is, no matter how tall you are, no matter how rich you are or not, no matter where you've lived or when you have lived, sin is what unites all of us. And he says, whoever practices sin. That's what the ESV says. Your translation might say something different. It's Greek word poieo. And so a translation could go in lots of different ways. It could just, that word can mean just to make or to do or to perform. So if I'm just doing sin, performing sin, and the case makes it even more serious, it's the present continuative case. It's whoever lives in sin. You are constantly doing sin. Whoever does that is a slave to it. Slaves, sinners are slaves to their sin. Therefore, this crowd, as opposed to believers in Jesus, is saying you're slaves to sin. And you know that the scripture confirms that fact elsewhere, the slavery to sin idea. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's what the gospel does. It frees us from a slavery to sin. Titus 3, 3. But we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, i.e. sin, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. What does it mean to be a slave? Jesus just said that they're slaves to sin, that all humanity is slaves to sin. What does it mean to be a slave? Your time is not your own. Your schedule is not your own. Your family is not your own. You are not your own. Somebody else owns you. And if they own you, they own what you do every day. They own what you're allowed to say, where you're allowed to go, when you're allowed to go there, how you can go there. What you can do and what you can't do without repercussion. That's what it means to be a slave. So Jesus very intentionally uses this imagery of slavery to define our relationship with sin. People are not casually sinners before being saved by grace. People are not free to reason and think outside the domineering will of their master called sin any more than a, than a physical slave is free to go out and do what they want to do and live a life that they would see as fitting. People are not free to do anything but sin before Christ. Sin is all they can do, and why is that? Because sin owns you. Only do the will of sin. And if this is who they are, slaves to sin, then they are not saved people. Because John says in 1 John 3 9, no one born of God, no one born of God, no one born again, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Sin is the harshest of taskmasters available. Sin is compensates its slaves with misery, pain, suffering, depression, desperation, and then ultimately hell. That's what you get from that, from that taskmaster. This is where the gospel term redemption comes in. You know what the word redemption means? It's not just a sports term for when you lost last week and looking for redemption this week. That's, that's not biblical redemption. Biblical redemption is a marketplace term for the buying back of a slave in order to set that slave of our salvation, of being bought from a master. And we see that, 1 Corinthians 6 and, verse, and 7. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of God, of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price. You were redeemed. You were bought off the slave auction block. 7.23 says, You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You've been bought off the slave block. 
and be set free. Mark 10, 45, Jesus describes himself for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to do what? Give his life as a ransom. I'm paying you. I'm buying you out of that slavery to sin. See, Christians, we've been purchased from that slave master called sin. That's the word redemption means. That's why it's such a precious Christian truth. Because slaves don't have the ability to buy their own freedom. How could they? When do you have time to go work a different job in order to earn separate money that you can keep that the master doesn't take from you in order to pay the master to buy your own freedom? You can't do that, right? No slave has ever been able to do that without the master saying, okay, you can go and do that. If he says no, which sin says no, you can't go and earn anything else in order to buy your own freedom. Somebody else with limitless funds is to come on your behalf outside of you and buy that freedom most wonderful thing happens to those true disciples. They're bought out of that sin. Then they abide in the word. Then they know the truth and the truth sets them free. It sets them free from that bondage to sin and to death. And only God can buy that freedom and save us from the full wrath of him. Here's what goes even beyond that in verses 34 and 35. So we're bought out of sin. We abide in his word. We know the truth. We're set free. And then we become sons and daughters. Co-heirs with Christ. Verses 35 through 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. See, the first step, step towards sonship is knowing that you're a slave. So he's telling you, this is what happens. This is the reality of sons and slaves in one household. He's moving from this concept of redemption to adoption. Redemption is a marketplace term, and adoption is a familial term, where you're permanently annexing an orphan into your family with full rights of any member of your family. See, remaining a slave, it does, it, it does eternal damage, but you don't see it right now, right? That's what Psalm 73 is all about. Psalm 73 is, is the psalmist looking at the wicked succeeding. Like, how come those guys are living in sin? They're living in rebellion against you, God, and yet they just keep having awesome lives. They just keep having great things happen to them. They just keep succeeding and prospering. Why is that? And then he goes on to say, like, no, I know God is just. I know God will reckon all things at the end. It may look like it. God's punishment may be delayed, but it is inevitable. So who would remain a slave to sin if they really believed that? I'm not really paying for it now, it seems, but I know I will later. Who would remain in that if they really knew? Jesus is telling his people that you can remain in disguise for a while, but your sins will find you out. Why? Because slaves don't live in the house forever. Eventually they get found out. You're not supposed to be in here. This is only for my children. Get out. Slaves have no inheritance. The father of the household does not treat slaves the same as he treats sons. Sons get inheritances from the father. Slaves get nothing. So the message is this, is confess right now your hatred of slavery to sin and pray for the freedom that God offers now, not later. Because a day is coming when there will be separation. The sons and slaves will be separated. The sheep and the goats, the good fish and the bad fish, the wheat and the tail. We'll all be separated question that every sinner could have is this, getting to this verse, how do I become a son? How do I become a daughter? 
How do I get away from this slavery and shift my status in the household of the father from slave to child? How do I get that? I want to shed these shackles of slavery to sin and be received by the father as a son, as a daughter. How do I stop being a rebellious slave? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because verse 36 tells us. So if the son, capital S, sets you free, you will be free indeed. The son of God sets slaves free, and it's through him they become sons and daughters of God. This is the message that Jesus has been saying the whole time. Right? We're eight chapters in. What has he been saying? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water that springs up eternally. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I am the true temple. I am the real reality of the brazen serpent lifted up the wilderness. Look to me. That's what he's been saying the entire time. I am he. The deal that Jesus is offering here is unfathomable to the person who truly grasps the reality of their slavery to sin. Wait a minute. You're going to take me and make me your brother? Your sister? Boy, I'm a slave to sin. I'm despisable by the Father. And you are going to take me, and you're going to clear a spot for me at the Father's table and welcome me to sit down there with you, the true son. How? Why? What, what is there in me that would make you do that? makes the gospel so gasping. If the Son sets you free, then you've been freed to become a son with him. Have you ever thought about that? We don't sing a lot of songs like that. Do you ever pray to Jesus as your older brother? That's absurd. That, 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 that's real, but that's what we're seeing here. If the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. You're now a son with him at the table of the Father. You become a co-heir with Christ. You have an inheritance like a child, not like a slave. That we're co-heirs with Christ, that should blow our minds. Look at Romans, or Galatians first, four, four and following. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, there it is, buying out of slavery, redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. As sons. And because you are sons, all Christians, you are sons, sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is just Hebrew for dad, a familiar term for dad. So you are no longer a slave. See it there? No longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, what does it say? himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. And if heirs of God, then fellow heirs with Christ. Can't you believe that? That's insane. That we would have the same inheritance as Jesus? Eternal life? The improvement of the Heavenly Father? The complete and utter disregard of our sin? Move from slaves to sons. This is what indeed means when it says in verse 36, you are free indeed. It's the Greek word antos. It means truly, really, authentically, genuinely. You are free. Truly free. 
And you're only truly free from that slavery sin when you're Christ's disciple. And you know what God doesn't do? He doesn't rush back to the auction block any slave that he buys out of slavery. He doesn't speed back to the orphanage to return any kid that he adopts. It's a permanent, irreversible, eternal status change from slave to son. That's what he does. It's true freedom. One study resource said this. It said true freedom consists in the ability to function and fulfill one's destiny in line with one's created nature. Sin deprives us of this because it obscures our mind, it degrades our feelings, and enslaves our will. And William Hendrickson, the, the famed commentator, he said, One is free, therefore, not when he can do as he wishes to do, but when he wishes to do and can do what he should do. That's real free. I'm going to read that again. He, that, he just crushed that one. One is free, therefore, not when he can do as he wishes to do, but when he wishes to do and can do what he should do. That's real freedom. This is the freedom the gospel gives us. And it's only his to give. It's only Jesus' to give. You can't get it from anywhere else. And that freedom comes by Christ alone. But guess what? Thieves can't steal it. The government can't regulate it. And death and the grave can't cancel it. That's what kind of freedom it is. Those who Christ freed are eternally and invincibly free. Free indeed. So the conclusion we have to take away is what Jesus intended for his listeners to take away. Is that this is a moment of inward reflection. Am I a true disciple? Or am I just a fan? Am I continuing in his word? Do I know the truth? Do I know part of the truth? Have I experienced a degree of not perfect freedom from sin, but a degree of freedom from sin? Am I adopted into the Father's family? Can I say with confidence, without any kind of, you know, uh, dissonance in my heart, that I'm a co-heir with Christ? See, now we all wish we were continuing in the word of Christ more, right? We all wish we were reading our Bibles more. We all wish we knew the truth more patently. We all wish that we sinned less. We all wish we behaved more like a child of God. But here's the thing that you should think about the better gauge is this do I want those things do I want to know the word of God more do I want to sin less do I want to behave more like Christ do I want to know the truth more patently am I hungry for the preached word am I seeking assistance from brothers and sisters when when I fall when I don't know something when I'm struggling do I grieve over my own shortfall it's it's the desire the want the hunger best way I can think to illustrate that fits in our context with Texas A&M. Let's just be honest. It's a little bit like a cult. It just is. It's a little bit like a cult. I mean, think about it. Before you show up there, they have this thing called fish camp. You ever heard of that? Fish camp is an indoctrination camp. It's a week before you go to school, and what you do is you go out to this camp, and you sing around a campfire, and you profess your love for A&M, and they're not teaching you how to have good grades, or how to have a good career, or how to succeed in college. They're teaching you how to not get yelled at when you go to a football game and do the wrong thing. Or when you walk on campus and you step on the wrong grass. That's what they're teaching you. It's indoctrination camp. But you know what? All of the ridiculous traditions and all of those things, nobody gets mad at the person who really wants to do it, but is not doing it perfectly yet. Right? I'm a freshman. I don't know it. I don't get it. 
Uh, nobody's mad at that person because you wish that you had done the right thing. You wish you hadn't done the right, you can't stick up this hand, you can't do this one. If you do that one, you're gonna get yelled at. Or they'll make you do push-ups just because they're older than you. They're not mad at you for that because you wish that you knew it and you want to be a good Aggie. That's what made me an entirely problematic person to be with at Texas A&M. Because I knew all the right things yet wanted to do none of them. I was the Sadducee of Texas A&M. I got all the knowledge, but I do not care about doing any of this stuff. And so I'm like, wait a minute, how do you not know? Very problematic and very shameful to my parents. <laughs> but, but this is what it is. This is what true freedom is. What good is political freedom if you don't have soul freedom? What good is freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly? If your soul remains enslaved to sin, economic freedom or national freedom will bring you no comfort on your deathbed. No comfort. <clears throat> Only the freedom of Christ disarms the sting of death and gives us eternal peace. And if he gives it to all, then he gives it to all who seek him humbly and earnestly. So friends, as we close, seize the opportunity that this text affords you to examine your own because if you examine, let's just worst case scenario it right now. If you examine your own soul right now and you don't see what Jesus has described here, the good news is presented to you right now. And if you trust Christ right now, you lose nothing and you gain everything. So it's not a bad thing to pause and think about myself in relation to these seven verses. Because if I look in, inward and I don't see what's there, should, should be there, then I can cry out to Christ right now. And be saved right now. I lose nothing and I gain everything. And then what's true in verse 36 is true of us. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed free status that we should never have that that's not a, a distinguisher on our driver's license that should ever mark us because we are slaves to sin and we're not unwilling slaves we enjoy it we, we run to it we comply with it so easily and it's killing us and you save us even when we don't know that we need to be saved you buy us out of slavery when we don't even believe that we're slaves thank you for doing what is best for us and not waiting for us to think, reason, ponder as to whether or not it's the truth. Thank you for just showing up to that auction block and buying us. Thank you for just coming of your own volition to that orphanage and taking us home. Lord Jesus, thank you for making that all possible by being sin and you knew no sin but it was put on you at the cross by being willing to have co-heirs of the inheritance that is eternal life with us people who hated you before you changed our hearts people who like we sang earlier we were the ones shouting in the crowd it was our sin that held you on the cross thank you offering freedom to captives who didn't even know they were captives and if you told us we wouldn't have cared but you set us free anyway we did not come to be 
serve, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for us, to pay that price. We could never have paid. We weren't free to be able to go and work and pay this. And even if we could have been free to do that, it would never have measured up because we can't have that same righteousness that you have. You have to give it to us. It's an alien righteousness to us. It exists outside of us. Thank you for giving it to us. And Father, thank you for putting our sin on your son in that great exchange, the most lopsided deal in the history of the universe. We thank you for that. We praise you for it. May we always walk around just beaming because that's true of us. Because you have made us this way. We pray this all in